In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to Money Tales. This is Sandy. Our guest today is Johnny Mosley, a gold medalist freestyle skier who brought his signature moves to the sport. When we think about Olympians, our focus is usually on the sport. There's a whole money story behind it, and Johnny shares how he learned to hustle, to pull funds together, to support himself along the way. Johnny has leveraged these important relationship and business skills in his ongoing career. Hey, this is Cammy. Johnny is more than a retired Olympic athlete. He's also a television presenter, fellow podcaster, and entrepreneur. Johnny hosted three seasons of MTV's Real Challenge. He's been a Saturday Night Live host and was named the Sportsman of the Year by the Olympics Committee in 1998. Johnny and his wife, Malia, and their business partner created and run IOTA, a sunflower seed snack company. At the end of the interview, please stick around for our reflections on the conversation. Now, on to our interview with Johnny Mosley. Welcome to Money Tales, Johnny Mosley. It's great to have you with us today. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your life, and maybe a few pivotal moments that make you who you are. I think for the purposes of this particular podcast, my business, I guess, what I'm known for is skiing. I was just kind of a in an obscure sport called freestyle skiing, mogul skiing, which I started doing in the early days of the sport, of the mature part of the sport in Squaw Valley back in the mid-80s when I was around nine or 10 years old. And the sport kind of grew and got into the Olympics. And I followed that path as well. And I eventually went to the Olympics in 1998 and won an Olympic gold medal in the sport of mogul skiing. It was a unique win in that I did this trick called a 360 mute grab. And the reason that's significant is because during that particular era of skiing, snowboarding had really eclipsed skiing in popularity. And skiers were kind of seen as old school, if you will, and our tricks were outdated and moguls was kind of almost at its nadir, I would say. And as a result, the industry was sort of, I would say, flatlined. There was a handful of skiers, including myself, that started to, instead of switching to snowboarding, we kind of respected snowboarding, liked snowboarding, and we started trying to adapt some of their style and tricks to skiing. And that really manifested itself in my run at the 1998 Olympics, where I did a 360 at the bottom of my run, where I reached down and grabbed my ski in the middle of a 360 and pulled it back and across. Freestyle skiing, particularly moguls, is judged. So you have 25% is time, 25% are the jumps, 50% are the actual technique and turns. It was significant because it indicated kind of a rebirth in skiing 
and really gave a jolt to the industry and launched what is now known as free skiing and somewhat of a new style of skiing and a kind of a, almost a, a side industry within the ski industry. And so that's kind of what I'm most known for and, and what I've made a career out of. Thanks. That's great. So we're going to bring you back even before you started skiing. <laughs> and just tell us a little bit about how was money handled at your home? How was money talked about in your family? Well, my family, we grew up in Marin, obviously in an affluent area just north of San Francisco. My parents generally brought us up to not really talk about it. We had a sort of a unique situation where my family has money in particularly my dad's side of the family. My grandfather was a really successful inventor and entrepreneur. We grew up with means in the family, but it didn't necessarily translate to sort of the direct means in our immediate family. We had plenty, great resources. My dad basically worked in building houses and really in construction. Also, some participation in managing some of his dad's properties and some of those businesses over the years. So kind of a mix of different entities he was involved with. He started his own marine dredging business when he was in his 40s to service a yacht marina that we had in the family. So it was a little bit of a mix of his own, doing his own thing mixed with some family business. And then my mom was a real estate broker, was a residential real estate broker. So she often did the transactions for the houses that my dad built. She was really the supply of the money that we used for things like skiing, et cetera, was really the kind of, I guess, I would say the main driver of getting us up to Tahoe and involved in skiing and on ski teams and making kind of facilitating that and all the different sports we were into. I would say that during that time, it was the financial picture was we can provide these opportunities. It's not like you can have whatever you want, but certainly you guys are showing interest in driving towards things. We always sort of had what we needed at those times. And I guess that's kind of a, a fair summary of it. It wasn't like a full-on situation where we had tons of cash to do whatever we wanted, but we had resources for sure. And they created these opportunities for you to, to support your passion, which is neat. And I'm curious, how did you get into skiing? My dad loved skiing. My mom loved skiing as well, but she grew up on the East Coast and then had only skied a handful of times. And my dad actually the same thing. He grew up in the Bay Area and had only skied just casually, like his family wasn't into it when he started being able to go up there when he was, you know, a teenager, had a car or whatever, he would go to Sugar Bowl and then go to Squaw and, and he really loved skiing. And then he moved to Puerto Rico when he was in his, I think, early 20s for business. He and his dad had a company that manufactured aluminum windows and all the, the hardware that goes with those. And they moved it down to Puerto Rico for a variety of reasons, one of which was to be closer to the company that manufactured the actual hardware that goes with the windows. I think there was probably some tax benefits or something at the time, but my dad basically moved the operation to San Juan, Puerto Rico. When he was down there, he didn't ski at all. And my mom, who was on vacation on the East Coast with a friend of hers, and they got married and all three of us were born in Puerto Rico. I was only two when they moved back, but they were down there for 10 years or something. My brothers were seven and eight. And when that business went south, they decided to shut it down. My dad said, we got to go back to California. 
they came back here into Northern California. As far as I can tell through family research over dinner, I mean, I think my dad just really missed skiing. He had three boys that were what, two, seven and eight. And he just was like, Hey, let's go to squaw. Let's go skiing every weekend. And squaw. He needed to tire you out. I think so. I think he did have that sense. Like, what can we do to keep them busy and keep them activated? They're super energetic and certainly sitting around here in the winter and it's not going to be good. And so we started going up there on a regular basis. And my dad's a good skier, but he wasn't like never raced or never did anything formally. So instead of teaching us, he immediately kind of got us a couple of ski lessons here and there. And then the ski instructor said, Hey, you know, these kids are pretty good. You should put them on the little Mighty Might program, like the junior race team at Squad. He said, Great. So he put us on there. And then just one thing led to another. And all of a sudden we were we were into it. And then it became a full family every weekend expedition. During that time when you were growing up, did you think very much about money? Did you have aspirations for your future? I think I did, actually. I think in every family, money is a topic. It's kind of a a stress point. It comes and goes, definitely different times. I also felt as I started to get older, I really started to, and my older brother and I really started to understand, I guess, the burden that we were putting on our parents. They were so good about everything. They hardly ever expressed that. They were just back there working. My mom getting a job as a real estate broker and my dad working construction to like give us everything we wanted. But kids sense, they know what's up. They can tell when there's stress around money in the family. And Rick and I always felt guilty, I guess, if you will, that we were sort of, especially as you start to get 16, 17, 18, and you start to understand a little bit about what it costs to do things. And I definitely started to understand that connection and and wanted to relieve them of that. And also, you know, I always kind of saw money a little bit as an indicator of just like when you're competitive and anything else. And and as I started to get further along in skiing, I started to understand the process that as you're getting more well-known, you're helping these ski companies sell product and you should get compensated for that. And first of all, I need the resources because now I want to train. Now I want to go to New Zealand to train and things are starting to ramp up expense-wise. So you start to really understand that connection between what you want to do and finance and money. And when was this all happening in your life when you started entering into some of these financial relationships with vendors? And I would say that I think when I was about at a light rate in skiing, you know, where you're starting to accept, solicit and accept equipment, just trade out stuff when I was probably around 16 years old you're starting to align with usually with like a local, like a coach has a connection with a local rep. If you're a ski company and you got a kid that's coming through the ranks and I had one junior nationals when I was 15. So I was, if you knew what you were looking at and you were within the industry, you kind of knew I had potential. Everyone wants to try to start align. Not everyone, but I ended up aligning with a couple of ski companies. And then by the time I was 17, Going on 18, probably around 17, I had won the Noram Tour and I was invited to go up to the World Cup Tour. And that's when you start to have the opportunity to, you need to start raising money. When you get on the US ski team your first year, they don't pay for anything. They pay for your training camps, you know, your training camps and stuff like that. But when you go on the road, when you're low level like that, you're responsible for paying to get there and lodge and 
pretty much everything besides like your entry fee and your coach's fees and stuff like that. So you're, you're, you're looking at it like a eight to $10,000 bill at the end of the winter, but they do allow you to have what's called a headband sponsor, as they used to say. And that's like a patch on your hat, basically. And that's pretty much the only slot they give you because the U.S. ski team has their own sponsors, right? Visa and everything. So they give you this one spot to sell and it can't obviously be with a company that's opposed to competitive one of their companies. So it's a very narrow slot. And then of course you have the ski companies too. It's very competitive because there's a lot of skiers and they tend to be small companies and they don't pay a lot. So basically you start the hustle, right? And it's a matter of you start writing letters and letters and letters and letters. And I have a whole file full of rejection letters of me writing, telling people I'm going to be the next Olympic champion, the World Cup, and you should sponsor me now and, and all that stuff. And you basically start this sales process. The first deal I got was really, um, I was writing all these companies that I, Kinko's and just companies that you sort of see on TV getting rejected by these, you know, marketing firms or whatever. And then I happened to be at dinner with one of my neighbors. One of my parents' friends was over at the house and had sort of overheard me talking about this process. He said, you know, I used to be a race car driver. I understand this process. That's what race car drivers do, right? They slap themselves. You know, it's all about sponsors and patches and branding on the car. It's a very parallel universe to skiing. And he said, why don't you send one of those marketing letters over to my company, which is a marketing guy for a company called Acclaim, which was a maker of a video game that I loved called Mortal Kombat. After getting rejected, I sent it over to him and, and he was my first headband sponsor that kind of launched me. And I mean, these deals were maybe a couple thousand bucks for the season, you know, and then you're you're scraping a thousand dollars from a ski company and $500 over here. And then the contracts have victory schedules. So you do start winning, which of course you don't in the first year, you get your butt kicked for like at least a couple of years, but then you start, you know, winning or getting in the top five and these little chunks come in and then you start to build on it. These are amazing skills that you learned. Something that I never appreciated. You watch this, you're a consumer of what's happening, but you don't understand what's happening in the background and all the work that went into it. What are a couple lessons you learned through that selling yourself, paying for your passion and what your drive is, what your goals are? I never saw it as something that I would learn from, but I've learned everything from it. It's funny because I'm pretty much doing the same thing to this day, right? And one, it's taken on new forms. A couple things that I learned is, and I wish I would have known back then even more, is how you present the relationship and understanding the other side of the relationship is the most important lesson that I don't think I understood then that I understood now. Like, for example, if you're soliciting the business of, of a sponsor or a sponsorship or something like that. Like you really need to understand what their business is all about, what they're selling, how they typically sell it, what's effective, taking the time to kind of understand that information before you sort of ask them for money <laughs> is super important. And I tell all the kids that are sort of coming up in the sponsorship world like that, there's a tendency for athletes to be like, well, I'm going to compete and win. So you should pay me. And that's not necessarily how it works. Like you need to understand their side of the business, which is you're trying to help them sell products. They're not only there to achieve your goal. Like you have to help them achieve their goal. And then furthermore, once you are in a deal, understanding while you're in that deal, 
where that business is going on an annual basis, on a semi-annual basis, on a daily basis. So you can adjust with them. I mean, like I've had deals where you could tell in a recession where it was going. And, you know, instead of waiting for them to have to tell you to cancel that, it's over. You call and be like, hey, I understand what's going on. How can I help? Could I defer some payment? I think that's the hard part to understand when you're 17 or 18 years old is you don't take the time to understand their business. And, and you obviously don't have a great sense of what the market is in general, the economy is in general and how that plays into your situation. Johnny, were there people mentoring you at that time on how to do this stuff? One of the things that was really hard to do is my family had no experience in this industry, right? I guess if they were experienced in any industry, it'd be real estate, construction, stuff like that. It's like, I remember getting my first contracts and I need to read this. And they'd be like, well, you got to have a lawyer. First of all, my dad was always great. He's like, you have to read that whole thing. It's like so hard to read a contract when you're like 18 years old and understand all the jargon. And you start redlining all the stuff that's just not even important at all, like little pieces of language that really are boilerplate or don't matter. And you miss all the important parts, like the number. And you start diving into stupid stuff. And then, of course, it's like, okay, well, let's have, we know this lawyer down the road and he's like a divorce attorney or something. He'll read it and then he'll redline it. You get this redline contract that's, and you send it back to the ski company. They're like, what are you redlining? Like, this is standard, first of all. This has to happen. So, yeah, finding mentors, the right people, and then trusting them when you're new or young is really hard. And in my particular case, you can't really get a sports agent. I couldn't get an agent. I would love to have had an agent, but I was so small time and making so little money that no real agent's going to really touch you. And so then you're just sort of on your own. Eventually, you do find some mentors, and I eventually did find a small agent that was interested in the action sports community, and he was great. And that like changed my life because it allowed me to train more and not have to deal with all that stuff. And then you learn, you know, a lot about that too. He helped me get to the Olympics, and then I got approached by a bigger agent, and I went with him, and I got sued by the old agent. So you're just like, you know, you're learning this stuff as you go along, and a lot of stuff that probably could be avoided, and just through communication. Uh, I think when you're young, you really have a hard time expressing your feelings early on. You wait until it comes to a head and then blows up. And then you make the mistake I feel like people probably make in your world as well, which is I make too, is you get someone to help you like an agent or someone in the business professional, and then you don't manage them. You just let them do their job and you forget about it and you don't pay attention and communication gets lost and things get ugly. And then so, yeah, I mean, I think even when you have people around you helping you, you have to also understand what their motivations are, what they're working on and dig into it a little bit. You have to keep doing your homework. And that was a separate subject. And then mentors are great. I mean, if you can get a good mentor, I did not have one at that point. The closest I had was a couple of older teammates that had sort of given me some advice here and there. I had my brother who was, I mean, I had incredible athletic mentors. My coaches, I had the best coaches in the world. I mean, starting with my older brother, going to my DeBray, my coach at Squaw, to, to my World Cup coach, Cooper. I mean, and Cooper was a great mentor to me in business as well and ended up being my manager. But that was after I had made most of the mistakes. So, <laughs> Of course, we all make mistakes, but the learning seems so priceless. 
you mentioned that you're still doing this type of work today, right? You're having to sell yourself. You're having to market yourself. Can you fast forward to where you are today and share with us a little bit about those situations and how you leverage what you learned in the past? I guess what I was doing before and what I'm doing now is similar in that I tend to work with different companies to help market and sell their products, right? I guess that would be the broad general description. And I do it in a variety of ways. When I was younger and competing, it was a pretty clear relationship where it was, I'm going to be competing on a World Cup tour and the Olympics. And as a result, that's going to get me a certain amount of exposure. And usually back then it was just TV, editorial, newspapers, magazines and stuff. And that's what I'm doing for you. And you can activate that in any way you can. As I got older, you start to understand, okay, well, what happens when I'm not competing when I don't have the platform of the World Cup and the platform of the Olympics to to sort of lever off of. And that's when I started sort of thinking about, okay, well, really, what do those platforms provide you with? You know, they provide you with exposure. That's kind of what, what those guys have inherently in there, what you get by winning on those platforms. So I kind of saw early on that I needed to at least develop like a presence in the TV world, if you will. And so I started taking advantage of some of the opportunities I had. Like, for example, before the Olympics in 98, there was a ski TV program here called Ski Magazine or something with Hank Cashua. And it was produced by a local company. I went to them and I said, hey, we're over in Europe half the time and we're not on TV. Like, can you give us some exposure? We're over there competing and winning races. And I said, if I send some video back, can you put it in the show? And so I would uh, bring this little like handy cam on the road with me and I would send them back these high eight tapes and they gave me basically like a little one minute segment in the show. And so I would get some exposure there. Right. And that kind of got me into that little like TV ring. And then when I won the Olympics, they came to me and said, Hey, well, what about a show? You want to do your own show? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I had never really hosted anything. So sent this producer with me and he kind of taught me how to be on camera and cheat to the camera and how to say this and all that stuff. And so I kind of, got myself educated and had my show. And I started then saying, okay, well, the World Cups are only in America twice. So how am I going to get more exposure? I went to IMG and pitched an event called the Johnny Mosley Invitational, which kind of combined two types of skiing and brought some of the best skiers in the world. I went to the Pro Mogul Tour, which happened to have a deal with, I don't know, CBS or something like that. And I competed on that. I went and learn some new skills so I could compete in the X Games. So now all of a sudden I was on TV like six, seven times a year during the winter, which is a lot. Winter's only four, four months long. So that allowed me to kind of lever back with your sponsors and say, hey, I'm going to doing this, this, and this. I'm of value to you in this way. So the reason I'm bringing that up is because that kind of led me down the road of, okay, well, now I'm in the role of creating value for these companies beyond just competing. And so if you fast forward to now where I'm way past Olympics, obviously we're in a digital world with social media, and but I'm using some of the same concepts where it's like, okay, how can I, how can I help you position your product within mainly in the ski sphere, the action sports sphere, kind of adventure sphere. For example, one thing I created was this adventure series called Johnny Mosley's Wildest Dreams, which is a kind of a combo of all these skills that I developed over the years, right? So 
I had been on TV a little bit after the O2 Olympics. I hosted Saturday Night Live. That was just a connection with the TV. That got me hired on MTV for the Real World Road Rules Challenge, like full network show. I ended up hosting American Ninja Warrior. It kind of led me down that TV road. And now I'm kind of combining all those things together. Like, okay, I can produce and create and host content. I think your product will fit perfectly in this scenario and will reach this type of demographic. And these are just the confluence of all the things that I kind of learned over the years working with different companies. Did you plan any of this when you were training for the Olympics? No. I want to go back to that moment. Such a big deal in an athlete's life. Were you focused on the future? Going into the 98 Olympics, I honestly thought I would finish my Olympic career and go back to school and restart in something else like engineering or, or I was always kind of hedging. I wasn't convinced that this was going to be like a long-term career process, especially before I won the Olympics, right? The life cycle of a World Cup mogul skier and the, the income, I'm not sure I was thinking about it too clearly. You know, as I started going towards the 98 Olympics, I think I did start to think about the future a little bit. In fact, after I won in 98, tried to quit because it wasn't even because I was like, oh, my career's over. You're just so exhausted. Your whole career, your whole life, you've been training for this one thing. And it's a lot of repetition and a lot of crashes. And I just was like, I'm done. I finished off the season and I transferred. I had been enrolled in UC Davis, so I transferred to UCLA. And I was like, my shoulder hurts. I'm going surfing every day. I'm going to party, make up for lost time. And I moved down there with some friends and had a great time. And it started going to school. And of course, that was when my career was just basically put a match to it. So all of a sudden, I had more deals coming in and more incentive to go. And the X Games was coming online. And so I was like, wait a minute, this is like the middle of my career. This is actually the beginning. To me, it was the end. It took me, you know, a couple months of self-actualization, partying and drinking on the beach to come to the realization that this was just the beginning. I had created something and now it was time to take it even further, you know? I think that's probably the time to answer your question when I started thinking about it as like, okay, the next four years, the Olympic quad going into the Olympics, what's my brand? How can I maximize this from a business perspective, from my financial perspective? How can I take advantage of this opportunity I created? to the max potential. Like I remember being in an airport, this guy came up to me and was like, congratulations. It's such a great thing. Hope you don't do like so-and-so did and blow it. Nice boost of confidence there. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So I was kind of driven by that notion of like, all right, this is the next competition for me. Like, how do I win this next part? Like, I wasn't actually even motivated by trying to win the Olympics at that point. Another Olympics like that did nothing for me. Didn't even want to think about it. But it was a little bit more like, okay, how do I not be that guy that's someone say, don't blow it like Johnny Mosley, you know, did, uh, you know, blow this opportunity. So the competitor pulls through. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Johnny, I'm curious at that time of your life when you're making the, this sounds like a very big pivotal transition for you. Was money stressful? Was making these decisions stressful at all? Or what were the emotions around 
money at that particular time in your life? At that time, obviously, I was, it was like a windfall, right? You go from 100 grand, 800 grand overnight. So you're like this like little 22 year old and, and money's just like people are just throwing money at you, you know? And you're certainly my, I think the biggest stress point for me was how do I not blow it? And then how do I not lose it? And that's definitely when I started thinking about what do I do with it and put it here. And then, you know, obviously I had plenty to reinvest in my, the actual process of trying to get better at skiing, right? And traveling and all that stuff. So the stress point, I guess, is probably like, who do you trust? All those kind of like typical things I think you do when you come into money quickly. We were never like a family of people who were trusting financial advisors. So that was always tough. It's not like we knew them and there are people coming to you, but you don't know who they are and you don't really even have the resources to understand who they are. So honest truth is I was a young 22 year old. I had my mom and my dad to help me. I mean, essentially without them, I probably would have blown it all. I mean, I think my mom was, it was just, I was still basically living at home you know, my mom was in residential real estate. So basically very quickly, she was like, I found a house for you. (laughs) And I went and was like, great, that's awesome. And so that parked a good amount of money for me, which I'm still grateful for today. It's the house I live in today. So I, I was very lucky to have a family support network that kept me on the rails. And were you guys talking about money openly at that time? Because you said when you were younger, it wasn't you know, money wasn't something that you guys were talking about. Oh, yeah. I guess, to be fair, as far as openly, when we were younger, you know, at that point, I think we, obviously, I was definitely talking about money with my mom and dad, for sure. What about friends and other people in your life? Because I can only imagine that you were having a much different experience than they were. Not enough. No, I, I don't think I was. I think that is part of the problem is you're not talking about it enough. I had an agent. You talk a lot about percentages and you deal with the agent. You know, that's probably the most talk, with, you know, the most amount of money you talk with is with your manager and your, your agent and deals and what that means. And so you learn a lot there. And then I think with my mom, it was probably more about like what I'm paying them and what we were doing with that money. Although I think primarily or just putting in, in a savings account. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was maybe some investment going on. I think we did start a retirement fund, obviously started a retirement account at that point, started socking that away, at least that much. You are a married gentleman. You've got kids. Tell us about how it is to raise kids, be in this relationship with your wife, and how do you bring in money conversations, money values, what's the purpose of money? I think it's really important and and I try to talk a lot about it. We do talk a lot about it. I, I am personally really interested in economics and just the way money drives everything. I just think it's interesting. These are pretty easy conversations for me to have. Often they're on the way to school, two minutes in the car with my sons. You know, my wife and I, work together. She's my manager agent, does a lot of the deals. I kind of help make them. She pretty much delivers it and deals with it. And so we constantly talking about finances and it's an everyday conversation and investing, et cetera. 
That's a neat dynamic. I really love this dynamic of your wife being your manager agent. That in itself is probably complicated. We are still together, so that's um, good. You know, <laughs> it, it was sign. something I. <laughs> I'm very lucky. She happens to be really sharp and shrewd and conservative as well, and with finances. So it's a great kind of asset to have beyond all her beauty and family and what she does as a mother and stuff. It was a valuable resource for me because when you're competing and you're on the road, it's hard to trust people. Like I said, it's hard to like, I mean, one of the great things about being an athlete is, and I miss about being a competitor is that you're like, you have this singular focus, but the downfall of having a singular focus is you're an idiot to all other things, you know, and that's good. That's how you win very hard to win an Olympics or get to the top level if you're really busy working on something else besides that because there are other people are not, your competitors are not. So it's a tough situation. So if you can have someone in your court that's really good with your situation, can deal with it, you can trust them, that is just an invaluable, invaluable resource. The only thing I think I, I lacked a little bit growing up was maybe a general understanding of business supply and demand, just like your basic econ stuff that I didn't learn until after high school. I didn't play around in investing at all when I was young. Like one of the things I'm trying to encourage my kids to do is take some risk early on, like just see what it feels like. You know, it's not something I did until much later was put your money down. They have some jobs and and they make some money here and there. Uh, Sometimes it's actually will be in like some of the companies I work with will ask for them to be in ads or they do some product reviews for a retailer I work with called Peter Glenn. And so they do the kids stuff and they have to talk on camera and they have to work and they make money. So they have an account. And, uh, but what I'm currently working on is trying to get them to actually take some risks, like start a business or invest in something and feel what it's like to fail, feel what it's like to lose that money. My family culture was very large presence of creating something for yourself. Like my dad was, it's all about building something and engineering something and creating and it's drawing on a napkin. And and we have this kind of like, always have this little like shadow of our grandfather who was like literally created a bunch of different products, had a bunch of businesses from electronics to physical products. And both my brothers and my dad, it was this culture of always trying to like create and invent something and market it, stuff like that. So we were allowed to kind of try and fail at that stuff. In fact, my brother and I created a company called Boot Blades when I was like 14 or something. And he was, I would have been younger, like 11 and he was 16 and it was rollerblades that snap on your ski boots. Oh, nice. I want a pair. (laughs) It was like this brilliant idea that we thought we had and we got it manufactured. We had to have aluminum extruded and my brother had some savings that he burned through getting all this stuff made. And I was creating these marketing materials and we were selling them in Mount Hood and everyone thought we were crazy. And turns out nobody wants to wear their ski boots in the summer. It was so brilliant. Like you wouldn't have to buy a whole boot. You could use your ski boot and they would adjust. And it was like great specific training for ski racing and for freestyle. And we just ended up with a warehouse full of wheels and and extrusions. But it was a good, really good lesson. I wrote most of a patent on them. So I had to read like a patent book. Oh my gosh, at such a young age. Yeah. Yeah. That culture was in our family and my dad is still that way. There's a lot of like almost like a 
taunt, like, what are you going to make? Like, what are you going to create? How are you going to create a solution for that problem? And so I'm trying to carry that on, but add a little bit more of the financial literacy part to it. So I think that culture is there. It's still there. My dad's down the road. It's still sort of a taunt with our kids is, hey, what can you make? How can you solve that problem? Which is, I think, you know, a great thing to have. That's an entrepreneurial side. But I think if you don't match it, I think you got to match it with the economic side. Like, and this is what my wife has really brought to the table. Okay. Like, this is the math. Okay. The math doesn't really work. Then you got to be realistic about that. Those are my two goals right now with my kids. That's great. Feeling at a young age, some of our guests have talked about that, how powerful that has been for them for their future successes. Hey, Johnny, you've done so much in your life already. You're still a young person. What do you most want to do that you haven't done yet? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. You know, one thing I, I haven't sort of successfully done is I just have built a brand, right? I have my business and my wife and I have started a product, the IOTA, which is a sunflower seed kernel, like a CPG product. I guess I haven't really done what my pops and my grandfather sort of, you know, have done, which is really build something like a, something that I'm into, like a creation and invention, something really useful that solves an issue and has kind of a, a legacy, I guess, and would be great if it was financially successful too. I think those are the things like when I think of an idea and I build it, I get really passionate about it and I really enjoy working on it. And a lot of the stuff I've done just really hasn't gone anywhere commercially and for good reason. That's probably out there, I think, is to create some useful, I wouldn't say it like disruptive or life-changing product, but something that solves some problem in the world. Johnny, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? Let's see. The conversation that's ongoing is between my brothers and my parents. These are conversations about family. You know, my parents are getting close to 80 and they've got some assets and it's sort of like, what are we doing with that stuff and in process and how do we make it transfer down without taxes and figure out all those sort of details and what's the best for all the stakeholders involved. And that's the type of conversation I'll probably be having later this afternoon. So it <laughs> feels like, feels like the older you get, that's all you really talk about, isn't it? <laughs> no, those are tough conversations and really important ones to have. Yeah. Thank you so much, Johnny. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. You're a fun person to be speaking with, and we really appreciate you joining us on Money Tales. Thank you, Johnny. It was enjoyable. You put me on the couch and made me think about this stuff. I appreciate what you guys are, are doing out there, and I think it is good, as hard as it can be to think about that stuff, and especially going backwards and looking forward and analyze it. I think it's important for everyone to do, so glad you guys are doing it. Well, thank you for sharing your tales with us. All right. Cammie, Johnny Mosley is a really focused person. You can tell not only by his gold medal, but all of the things that he has done since then. He is someone who's really focused on looking at all sides of opportunities and pursuing what's most important to him. Tell me, from that conversation, what really stuck out for you? One thing I liked, Sandy, is it was a theme that hit through some of his stories, and it's entrepreneurship, trying things at a young age. So we learned that he and his brother had started a business 
that is hilarious about turning ski boots into rollerblades, which would be an extreme workout because they're very, very heavy. But I loved that he did this. They failed and through that failure learned so much. He talked about how he is really encouraging his kids to do their own little entrepreneurial activities. But through that, there'll be little failures or big failures, and you learn so much. And it really reminded me of, gosh, my own life. You learn so much from your failures versus your successes. But then I think back to some of our Money Tales guests, and I was thinking about Tiffany Schlain, who talked about the gift of failure. She'd been nothing but successful, graduates college, and just has this audacious goal and falls flat on her face, or that's how she told us the story. I doubt it was that way, but that was her big gift. And I hear Johnny talking about that. I really see the power in that. I think you're right, Cammie. And I think those learning opportunities are wonderful, especially when you have many years between when they happened and when you reflect on them, because in the moment, (laughs) there's probably nothing worse. It just really stinks when something falls apart on you. But you're right. This is a theme that's come up before. And as you were talking about Johnny giving his kids some room to experiment, it reminded me of our conversation with Jamie Traeger Muni as well, because she shared the story about her son wanting to buy, use his allowance to buy a toy that she and her husband knew would fall apart right away. And while it was an expensive toy from the perspective of their son's allowance, it was still important to let him make his decision and learn from the situation that would likely unfold and did unfold of toy falling apart. This is a theme we've talked to clients about when they ask us for help with how do we talk about money with kids and being able to allow them some assets to invest, doesn't have to be much, then let them make some investment decisions, some saving decisions, maybe even with Jamie, some consumption decisions that they can experience on their own and learn from, whether it's learn from the successes and the failures. That's right. And I think one of the hardest things for people is to watch someone else struggle, or we'll use that word fail, when you know what steps could be taken to avoid the failure in the first place. We always want to share our experience with others. But when we do that, the other people in our lives just don't learn the same way. And so you're right. There's great opportunities, but the execution can be really hard. So we talk to clients about that as well, to really try to coach them to hang back and let the young people in their lives experiment and and learn the lessons that they'll learn. Always reminding clients that the sooner your children learn this lesson in their life, the better off they will be. Much easier to learn a lesson with an expensive toy as a child than with an expensive toy as an adult, because the cost of the toys change quite a bit. That's right. That's right. What about you and our conversation with Johnny? And what was something that you'd like to highlight here in this ending conversation and our reflections? So Cammie, for me, I was fascinated about the story of money behind the Olympics. And I had an inkling of how it all worked. And for me, it was just really cool and gratifying to hear firsthand. And I thought Johnny's descriptions of learning to hustle at a young age were lively. I was sort of envious, again, from that perspective of having experiences and learning from them at a young age. 
that's pretty crazy to be reading contracts with corporations when you're still in high school. But what great learning that must have been. And I really appreciated what Johnny had to say about his needing to learn to look at the relationship with the sponsors from all different views. He needed money to finance himself and get him to the next level of his sport. And the companies he was working with needed him to help sell their products. And so it was a very symbiotic relationship. He gained that perspective early on. And I also appreciated what he said about relationships and how it's really important to have relationships with the folks you're doing business with and get to know them and understand their business. And that's the way you make things a win-win for everybody. He's taken that so much into his life. So you look at what he's doing now and it just makes sense because he gets that it's not just about him. And it's just no wonder this gentleman is such a, he's already a very charismatic, athletically successful, but it's no wonder that he's also successful in his now financial pursuits with that attitude that it is win-win, that it's about communication and that you're not in this, what am I going to get out of this? How do we get out of this? How do we accomplish what we're trying to accomplish together? Yes. And he also highlighted the trust that's involved in all of that and creating trust with the people that you're working with. And I thought that was a really important point too. Super fun conversation. Just like all these money tales, I walk away from the conversations learning so much. And I'm so appreciative of our guests, including Johnny Mosley, for sharing their stories with us in this way. Me too, Sandy. And for our listeners, once again, let us know how's it going in your life, having many conversations. Do you have any other questions you want to share with us? You can reach us at podcasts at com. Yes, please reach out. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Johnny Mosley. Thank you, Cammie. See you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.